Welcome to East Meets West, episode 409. I'm Tom Merritt. And I'm Roger Chang. Roger has a crush on Firewire. I do. I do. It is probably <laughs> one of the one of the better uh, connection standards that uh, Apple has, has involved itself in over the years. Would you say you have a connection with Firewire? I do, partially because of my background in video, uh, production and video editing. Firewire, for at least a decade, was kind of the sta- industry standard for connecting uh, video capture or video devices like a camcorder to uh, to a Macintosh in order to what they call capture video or, or, or transfer video. What, we had what, it. what they call? No one else what calls it. What they call it. No one else calls it. <laughs> but uh, like our edit bays back at Tech TV, all the uh, DVR Pro decks uh, were connected into the uh, Mac editing bays with a Firewire connection. DVC Pro, right? DVC Pro. Yeah. There's DVC Pro, and what's the what's the Sony one? It doesn't matter. They're, they're compatible. Uh, but what's interesting, and people may not realize, is FireWire still exists today, but as a military interconnect standard for uh, data buses, like on aircraft and other things. So you can can keep the the faith alive for your. You your, can. Your I mean, dearest. it is it is a very effective standard. However. This is the big, however, not very secure because when they developed it, it was all about how do we get these two different devices to talk to each other in a way that can be universal regardless of who builds the the device. And like security wasn't a thing that was of a concern. I mean, to be fair, none of the protocols like Firewire at the time were secure. Well, it's because it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a concern like, oh, no, someone's going to come through and plug a device on and yeah. like you know at and you're, that point, and, and you're talking some... about physical access security exactly. it's not like it leaks wirelessly or anything exactly. it's just yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah and so yeah it was it's it it works it's very robust very robust but it topped out at uh, 800 megabits per second and i think we're well beyond that by now yeah um and thunderbolt is the spiritual successor to firewire much more successfully adopted uh and i think partly driven by the fact that Thunderbolt is included in USB. So USB 4 has Thunderbolt 3 compatibility built into it. Uh, so yeah, that kind of propels things along. It was um it was very much uh it was very much in the mindset of of Intel like man, we got to we got to like just integrate this with one like USB in order to to spur adoption in order to avoid the fate of firewire basically well that was the thing it's yeah. like firewire you had to pay a license to use yeah. the chip. on top of just buying too. the chip you had to pay a royalty on it yeah. and it was just like ah. and so it was never widely adopted uh, among consumer level devices but thunderbolt is which because we, even though you do have to pay the license to intel for thunderbolt right yeah but they they managed they they were talking about not re- like either reducing it or somehow making it less of a burden so it would be a little it would be it, basically to increase adoption they're looking at ways of mitigating the cost of that but i don't know what they ended up doing yeah they, they've done they've done a lot and I, I go listen to my episode on thunderbolt uh, where i researched it and told you and now can't remember all the all the details but yeah well you know tom that's a <laughs> that's a sure sign of aging aging uh yes uh i've heard of it what is it again i've forgotten I we we were talking about this up the other day when we were hanging out in Tom's garage as we often do on a Saturday morning. Yeah, um, that's right. It has nothing to do we were, with uh, shooting top fives. Just just you know, <laughs> two old men. 
hanging out in well, the garage. I was I was remarking to Tom like everyone I knew, like I thought were kids because like, they were in their early twenties or now like late thirties, early forties, and they're like, ah. Wait, that has happened in lots of different ways over the course of my life, and and not just mine. I think in anyone's life, where you suddenly one day realize that your contemporaries are the same age as the older as the older students right you know you're like oh my yeah. gosh i'm i'm friends with people that were you know if, if you had an older sister like i did my old my older sister's uh friends then you get to the age where you realize wait a minute some of these people are the same age as my my uh friends moms were when i was a kid right and then then at, at a certain point uh when you when you you get past the the halfway mark it starts to be the other way around wait a minute these these kids that i i, th- I thought of as the the generation behind me they they're getting in their 40s what's going yeah. on well no and it's and it's weird because oftentimes usually around around 40 in my mind after 45 everyone's in generally the same group of people even if they're in their uh, mid to late forties or or early sixties, like they're to me, they're just that group of people that hang around uh, at the family gatherings, sitting at the table, just talking about life. Yeah, kids right? kids are running around. Teens teens are being bored. Twenty somethings are are looking looking to go out and do something, and the rest of us sit around and talk. <laughs> and it's that's and fair, it's, right? I don't know. I don't. I don't want to say it's unnerving, but it is definitely a um, a very revealing uh, attitude toward the way we. Although that our... group of older people does change as you get older, right? Yeah. Because everybody from forty to sixty looks exactly the same when you're in your teens, right? You're like those are the adults, um, even the thirties actually. Uh, and then and then as you get into your thirties, you think of like, well, those are the older adults. The 40 through 60s. Uh, I'm a young adult. Uh, and then, then you get into your 50s and you're like, well, there's the old people, you know, in their 60s and 70s. And then there's me. And then there's the younger adults. Like, there's there's a little bit of segmentation, I think, that we we just naturally put around ourselves. I still find it weird back when, even, even back in my, my old office jobs where people would come to me. And ask me for advice. It's like, why are you coming to me? It's like, well, you're the the you're the, the old man on the hill. You're the Roger. oldest one here. It's like, no. Oh. <laughs> well, it's especially in that startup era in the 2000s in in San Francisco, you you could be 28 and be the oldest person in the office back then. Uh, that's very true. I, 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 and I imagine there's still places like that now, but I just that was very true in San Francisco at a certain period of time. Yeah, like if you were over, if you if you were if you were in your late thirties, forties, you were like upper management, and yeah. you had yeah, yeah. a button-down shirt <laughs> that's tucked into your jeans. And uh, I, I I know I've mentioned it on Eastbeats was before, but there was the uh, the CFO of of ZDTV slash Tech TV would occasionally criticize people for their shirts. Tuck your shirt in. My gosh, <laughs> please. What kind of what kind of place do you think this is? Well, yeah, yeah. And it's and, like, and I was one of the older people in there because I was I was twenty nine, thirty, uh, thirty one. Most you know, I was. I, I guess I started working there when I was twenty nine, and I stopped working there when I was thirty four. So you know, I was I was an old man. I I was amazed at the dress code, like they that they let it slide. I remember when uh, I'm sure people are going to enjoy this. But uh, um, HR saying like, okay, now you can wear jeans to work, and it's like, 
the past year and a half, everybody kind of looked at each other. It's like, oh, we weren't supposed to be wearing like <laughs> jeans to the office. Well, it, you know, that's really interesting because I don't think dress codes are as big of a thing in California and, 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 and haven't been for a long time. Uh, I think they're less of a thing even in New York and the East Coast than, than they used to be. But just 20 years ago when we were working, the idea that there was a dress code still persisted, even if people ignored it. And I, I remember uh, thinking, well, those dress codes, that applies to people in sales. That applies to people in management. management that doesn't yeah. apply to us in production. We, nobody cares about us. We're, we're like slaving away in a cubicle or we're over in the studio uh, and, and so, so yeah, I, I think that's why we all were like, really, we weren't supposed to wear jeans. I, I don't think that dress code ever applied to us. That apply that's somebody else, but I think it was supposed to apply to us. We just, they just didn't bother enforcing it. I mean, uh, no one ever, California. Yeah. Well, it's uh, no, also like, you know, we, the company age profile skewed to like, the, like 30, like 32 is like, you know, the, yeah. the average age, because a lot of us were in our mid to early well, 20 it, yeah in the production side it was it was and so 20s, it, it, wait, yeah. it it balanced out like a lot of the salespeople who were in their their ripe old 35 34 yeah, yeah. You know, age group and and dress codes two things two things about dress codes one is uh they have loosened d d dress standards change all the time right the, d the dress code in the 20s might have included a, a waistcoat <laughs> you know, and and uh, ties are okay, but cravats are preferred. Kind of kind of situation, uh, and and it's loosened over time as as we think of it as loosened, but it's really just changing standards, right? Instead of instead of a, a three piece suit, uh, and you know, or or going back into the seventeen hundreds, you know, ruffles and and all this other stuff. Uh, kind of standard business dress now doesn't even require a tie. It's it's coat. Coat and pants matching, and a and a collared shirt of some you know white or maybe salmon or blue or something. That's that's dressed up, business style. And you put on a tie for important occasions, or important meetings. You know, it, it's kind. Of, it's not exactly optional, but it's not always required. You you definitely see people without going out without a tie. Twenty years ago, if you were dressed up for business, you wore a tie. Uh, and, and unless you were a woman, in which case you, you, it was pantsuit, you know, and all of that, but I mean, it's, it's kind of weird because I remember in the eighties, the, the waistcoat, the, the vest was like a huge portion, uh, part of the three piece suit, right? Yeah. Then, yeah. That was, that was like, oh, he's really traditional and formal. Right. And, and, and that was actually just more standard, you know, 70 years before that. Uh, and you so know, anyway, it, dress codes change and, and. And I think the other thing, when I said there were two things, dress codes change and dress codes are kind of not a thing anymore. Like they're kind of old fashioned just to have a dress code. People are so used to being able to dress however they want uh, that, you know, I, I feel like dress codes have gone from like, this is how you dress at work. It's assumed, which was the 50s uh, up into the 50s, right? Uh, they didn't need a dress code because everybody just knew like well, this yeah. is what, that's what you do. Then in the 60s, with, when people started, you know, uh, having a cultural revolution, uh, you know, and dressing in T-shirts and, and hippie, hippie clothes, you had to put in a dress code. Uh, hey, you can't wear that stuff to work. I don't care what you do on your own time, but you can't wear that stuff to work. And I think now we've we've sort of evolved out of that to to being back to where people are like, 
yeah, wear, wear what you want within reason. And most people have a different idea of what's within reason. They, we've kind of coalesced back on acceptable work clothes well, to the point that most places don't really need a dress code. We all kind of understand what's appropriate for the workplace. Barring uniforms and, and things like that, it, it, you know, in certain restaurants and professions like post well, office. And I mean, it's very interesting because we now have things that we, we call office casual instead yeah, of right. office formal. But w- one of the more notable things is the the lack of headgear, right? Up and through the 40s, like early through the 50s, <laughs> wearing a hat for, for a guy going to the office was normal. Oh, oh, that then around happen. the 60s, it kind of disappeared like you could show up at the office without a hat you didn't need a fedora or anything you know you, know, you never wear your hat inside but you, but yeah it yeah. was de rigueur to wear a hat while you were outside that was part of being fully dressed and uh yeah no men and women although women could wear their hats inside um but it's yeah i mean it'll be it'll be it's interesting i think at some point everything will become I don't think I think there will be a, a pushback. I mean, there was a kind of a minor pushback. I remember like eight years ago, there was there was some talk about like having a more formal attire. There's but, always a pushback, right? Because as the standards loosen, the people who grew up with the standards and and have maintained the standards don't want to let go of the standards because then they put on all that hard work following the standards for nothing. Uh, and it feels like for me in the U.S. anyway, I think it's different in different places. But in the U.S., it usually comes out of New York. Usually comes out out of the financial industry in New York. I bet it, I bet in England it would it comes out of London uh, in the, in the city in the financial industry. It usually seems to come from the financial industry somehow. That 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 pushback. Yeah, you know it's and that's one of the things about being old is that you start to see these things. It's like I don't know. Oh, I, I I'm sure that if I ever step back into an office. I don't know if they'll they'll take me at my age, but uh, if I ever step back into an office, uh, I'm I'm sure there will be some sort of office attire that I can glean just by looking. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you wear jeans and a collared shirt, you'll probably be fine in most offices. Yeah. You may look around and be like, "Ooh, I'm the only one with jeans," and just kind of feel the social pressure to to put on some chinos or something. I guess depends but on even, the office. I mean, like chinos is that nice split, right? It's it's not it's not as uh, it, they're not dress slacks. Yeah. At the same time, and they're comfortable, but they're not as, I guess, as too casual as jeans. They look, yeah. Black denim can can pass a lot of times. People don't yeah. don't don't look twice at, at it because it looks like you're wearing dress pants. I mean, of course, we're talking about men's clothes almost exclusively, partly because we're men, partly because historically men dominated the workplace, but women's clothing is in an is another part of this because when we're talking about the the suit coat and and tie thing that's never applied though the tie part anyway has never applied to women it's always it's always been you know dresses like literally office codes required women to wear dresses uh through a mid part of the 20th century and then into pantsuits and 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 things like that a lot yeah. of the a lot of the dress codes are cracking down on on women's apparel too uh, you know, not showing too much skin, yeah, dress skirt length, stuff like that. And like, um, I, I definitely think that the the whole vibe of like just t-shirts and jeans and hoodies that that have become sort of like the uh, the iconic Silicon Valley startup uh, uh, uniform. I think I think that will eventually fade away. 
Is uh, is, I you don't think so? I feel like the hoodie may may have outlasted its fade out period. <laughs> I I'm not sh- I'm not sure. Um, t-shirt T-shirt definitely was a fad in the '60s, right? And it was an undershirt that people wore. It was like it was almost considered obscene. I I, I don't know if anybody remembers that anymore. But wearing a T-shirt outside that was low class. Right. That's that's you're you're outside in your underwear, basically. Oh, my gosh. Look at these people. Then it became printing things on it to be like, oh, check out my T-shirt with a slogan on it or a logo. And then by the 80s, T-shirts were perfectly normal casual wear. Yeah. And and casual meaning like on the weekend, on vacation, you'd never wear a T-shirt to work. Uh, Not at a serious job anyway. And and T-shirts kind of uh, survived to the point where I, th- I think they may be becoming just standard workwear in a lot of situations. And I feel like hoodies are making the same, well, the same I mean, escape because hoodies existed all the way back into the 70s, but they were a, they were a weird thing. I remember people like, oh, yeah, a hooded sweatshirt. What a what a novelty. And then it wasn't until the 2000s that they started to become common. And you think of them as like dot com startup wear and people are still wearing them. I, I expected the hoodie thing to just already fade out by now. I mean, uh, the, the hoodie was. I think it's become a staple. Always, hoodie was always associated with some sort of uh, sports or training, right? We're, right, think of right. Rocky before or, before the dot com yeah. uh, cooptation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's what you did when you were doing something very. Yeah, if you're if you're out running the steps of Philadelphia, climate. training for your boxing match, you wear a hoodie. Well, yeah. and you know, it's interesting because the T-shirt, as time evolved, when, originally undershirts weren't that heavy. Right, they were just they, they couldn't be too heavy because they no, would be that, under a, a, dress, right, uh, a right. button-down shirt. But I think as T-shirts wearing that became the norm, they became they started using heavier material, mm-hmm. so you could wear it and it wouldn't be one, it wouldn't be sheer, but two, you could feel somewhat comfortable in it and not feel like you were just exposed. Um, yeah, there's the, definitely an evolution of T-shirts that that I don't know enough about to really dig deep into, but. Just from my own personal experience, they they went from being sheer to durable to thick. Like, oh, this is a nice sturdy T-shirt. But then thick was less comfortable. And like the most recent evolution I've noticed is thick but soft, like a really soft yeah. material. Um, well, I mean, we put collars on them and then a couple of buttons at the top that open. We call them polo shirts. Is that is that no, a no, T-shirt I, evolution or was that just a it's, convergent it's, it's, evolution? It, I think it was. I think there was the polo shirt, but then yeah, I the, think the polo shirt came from playing rugby and polo because they're also those called were, rugby those shirts. Still, those were even if they were long sleeve, they were still your standard pullover. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was. It was again. It was like like the hoodie. It was a sporting thing. Like but we're they, gonna have our kids out there playing polo uh, or rugby. But we can't have them just wearing a, their t-shirt, their underwear. We I, must put a collar on it and some buttons. I used to wear polo shirts all the time at, at work. Oh, yeah. I would wear like a very thin like undershirt underneath it just to be somewhat. That was uh, in high school. Uh, if you, you, you know, mo- most kids wore t-shirts, but if you wanted to to look a little dressed up, you wore you wore a polo, uh, some kind of Izod or Fox. If you could with only afford J C Penny like us, <laughs> yeah. Oh, something with a collar and a couple of buttons on it. Yeah. Now I can be one of those people that says, oh, I remember Mervyn's or Montgomery Ward's. And people like scratch it. What are you talking about? I Um, don't remember Mervyn's. We never had Mervyn's. Of course, I remember Montgomery Ward catalogs. 
Montgomery. J.C. Penny. You can say I remember J.C. Penny because those are almost all gone too. Uh, well, I remember Montgomery Wards because I went there when it closed to go through the like where you have to sell everything fifty percent off, but also because I took my friend's car there to get the brakes redone. It was one of the few department stores like Sears that would also have a full. Yeah, we didn't have or, a lot of Montgomery Ward locations. We had a few, but Montgomery Ward for us was a was a catalog. Sears was Sears and J.C. Penny were the anchor stores of your. Of, of your middle class, lower middle class malls. And if you wanted to, to get kind of fancy, you got a famous bar, which is I mean, which was is now owned by Macy's, but it was that Macy's level. You, well, it's, it's interesting because like, things like Target came out in the, well, they started in Minnesota, I think, in the 70s. Yeah, there were a bunch of those. It was Target, Kmart, Venture was the one in St. Louis area. They're all, all in that same class of like, uh, we're not as we don't have to be as upscale as a JC Penny or we have to be upscale, but we don't have to offer yeah that entire range of yeah products. yeah 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 home for a uh, home it was home a discount clothes and Target's and the, the only is, one left of that I think really Target. I mean um what's it what's Kohl's out here in California is is kind of drifted down towards Target it, it used to be more on the Sears Macy's yeah and problem is like. Kohl's was such an odd fit for a lot of people because they had stuff, but it, it, it fit a it fit a it fit a demographic gap that or a bracket that I think was shrinking. It was like for for but it survived. It's still around. Yeah, I'm not sure I how I'm, either. <laughs> I'm not, I I don't know. I I I don't know what to make of Kohl's. Sometimes we we lived near a Kohl's when we lived in San Rafael, California, and. I loved it. I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is kind of a throwback." Like this is this reminds me of what a JC Penny was back in the I day. I think that's but, one of the reasons why I hate shopping there because I remember oh, how yeah. JC Penny's like, ah. I guess they uh-huh. just did it. It's like Best Buy, right? Best Buy op- operates in in what was a collapsing market segment, but they just did it better than Circuit City and Good Guys and all those others. So they survived and they won. Uh, and so they dominate that now. Uh, maybe maybe Kohl's is the same situation. They they just did it better than J.C. Penney and Sears. The one I hope that doesn't go away is Macy's because Macy's has been around since I was a kid, but it was been around since my my parents came to the U.S. And so you know uh, what's the and it's been in movies. What's you the have uh, nostalgia for Macy's? Nostalgia. Yeah, the Macy's Day Parade, parade and, the uh, movies, yeah, the yeah. You know, the one with Santa Claus. Um, What's the, Christmas Miracle or no Miracle? Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Thank you. Ooh, yeah, uh, that was a tough one. God, get me. <laughs> uh, but Macy's over the years has always kind of kept up. Like even even when I was a kid, that's where you went if you wanted upscale hip clothing. Oh no, no, work. we did. We didn't have Macy's growing up. Macy's was a thing you saw in movies. That was a thing in New York. I didn't even know they had Macy's out in California when I was growing up. Macy's was was that thing. Uh, Macy's was a tourist destination. Oh, someday I'll go to New York and I'll visit the actual Macy's uh, and the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in front of the Macy's in New York. We had Famous Bar. That that was our St. Louis version of Macy's. Same thing. Same same level of you know service and all of that. And and Macy's bought Famous Bar. So now if you go to St. Louis, you'll you'll go to a Macy's instead of a Famous Bar because they bought them all up. But but yeah, Macy's was not a national thing back when I was growing up. 
but it, it, it cover like I remember my parents and I, I did the same, I still do the same thing. You, you bought a variety of goods, like traditional department stores. You bought clothing, yep. you bought apparel, you bought a uh, home goods. So like towels, bed sheets, um, or what the I famous did was, bar flagship store in downtown St. Louis. We would go to every year on Friday after Thanksgiving uh, to go visit their their uh, exhibits because they would have these animated things in the windows. They'd have a whole floor dedicated to like animatronics that the kids would walk to, and at the end you'd sit on Santa's lap, get your picture taken, tell Santa what you wanted for Christmas, all that stuff. Um, and and every floor was different. There was there was uh, obviously the clothing floors. But there was also a toy store floor. And I remember there was like a hobbies floor that had like stamp collecting and coin collecting. Uh, there was the restaurant, which I think Macy's still does that. Certainly Bloomingdale's does that. Um, I mean, but Macy's- yeah, it was it was a whole destination. Everything in one place. I guess it was before a mall, the department store was the, the place where like, oh, we'll, we'll have everything in one place. Well, I mean, the Macy's in downtown San Francisco in Union Square on the fifth floor for whatever holiday season although Christmas was the big one, it wasn't, the whole floor was themed. They would have a very elaborate uh, displays, you know, that they would set up in. Part of so it was... So similar to what Famous Bar was doing, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it wasn't even just selling you stuff. It was just stuff to look at. Yeah, yeah. So it was an attraction to bring mm-hmm. people to the store. Because totally. I remember we used to go every, uh, you know, every Christmas season, my mother would, we would go shopping, but we would always make it to the fifth floor so we could just walk around and see all these displays. You yeah, know. I can't remember which floor it was, but it was the kind of the same idea with Famous Bar. Uh, and I was, I, the I was, only thing they had for sale on that floor that I remember were, were gift bags. So you could you could pay for a, a, a gift bag and it would have some toys in it and you wouldn't know what they were. It was just a way for them to get rid of overstock. But, you know, we thought it was super fun because like, ooh, mystery bag. But that was it. Uh, and then we would go there first. Then we would go shopping. Then we would eat lunch at the famous bar restaurant. Then mom would take us downstairs to look at the windows outside because they had animated stuff in the windows while dad put all the stuff in the car because they were probably buying our Christmas presents and didn't want us to see them. I I mean, these are the department stores I grew up with. I grew up with Macy's, J.C. Penney's, Mervyn's, Montgomery Ward's, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Nordstrom. Uh, Neiman Marcus, which is up to school. I, I, oh, yeah, I remember my mom just Neiman. buying a few mm-hmm. things there. Uh, but we also had Bullock Jones and iMagnum. And the last two died in San Francisco. Like iMagnum started in San Francisco. I don't think uh, it really okay. reached we had, um We had JCPenney and Sears, of course, because that was national. We had Famous Bar, Sticks Baron Fuller, uh, which is kind of a Nordstrom-esque uh, chain, or was. Uh, Woolworths, like the actual like Woolworths department store, although those started to go away in the 80s. Uh, I'm trying to remember if there was another one that I'm forgetting of that class. There were obviously like the Venture and Target and all that sort of thing, but Kmart. What, what, I, what got me the most excited is when they started selling uh, computer, home computers at department stores like Macy's and stuff. They would have that clear section where yeah. it was it was TVs, it was radio, all the standard like home stuff, like yep. TVs, uh, stereos. But they also had like synthesizer keyboards, and they yep. had, they had like a. I remember they had a Vetrix video game system that they sold because when it came out, it was like a big deal because it was a hundred bucks, self included monitor, had one built in game, um, and it was like it was the bee's knees. 
I remember it's like, why can't it, you know, why can't I just live here? Because so <laughs> cool, you could play with everything. And it was it was very remarkable because no one at the time knew too much about what they were selling other than what their sales guide told them, like what to say, because they only had like five or six points on it. Um, but it was very remarkable because there was a there wasn't a time where there was a computer store available. I mean, there were computer stores, at least in the Bay Area, but they're they were rare, geared, yeah. they were very they're very much geared toward yeah. offices, right? You went in there to buy, you know, five PCs because you needed to outfit your your financial office or printers, and that's how they were geared. They weren't meant for average consumers like a department store. And I, I just remember because they were selling all sorts of stuff, and it's like. You would look at it one year and you go the next year it was completely gone. Like they would have a different model or from a different maker in its place. And it would be just like IBM PC compatible, you know, seven ninety nine comes with a five and a five and a half inch or five and a quarter floppy drive. It's monochrome monitor and all this stuff. And it was just very I thought it was kinda cool, but it's it's ridiculous <laughs> like how they sold everything. Like I even remember back in the the seventies my dad used to take me to Montgomery Wards because it's over, right across from the, the Toys R Us. Um, they used to sell car parts, right? It was a department store, but they sold car tires, mm-hmm. batteries, like yeah, Sears. like Sears. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like, they work in your car and you buy clothes here, too. It seems all very odd. Well, it was the mall before the mall, right? The mall is the one that ruined that model by saying, well, we'll, we'll have a Babbage's for, for computer stuff, and we'll have a, a Walden Books for books, and we'll have a, a KB Toy and Hobby for, for your collectibles I, and, and toys. Like, I and, miss- and so if you had a department store at the end of that mall, they couldn't compete on all of those things. So they, they had to concentrate on the things that they did well, which is was usually ended up being clothing and jewelry and perfumes and cosmetics and stuff like that. Remember when Walden Books used to sell software? No, I don't I, remember Walden Books having much software. Maybe a little bit. Did I they have more out, I, where, out there? I remember that they used to have a small section, like maybe two shelves. Yeah, okay, shelves. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they had a, it, they, yeah, just a tiny bit. If you count bit. the other side of it, like, so it'd mm-hmm. be... So two, they're facing against each other, but it'd be just like you know, Infocom games or stuff, and it was like yeah, this maybe is some weird. accounting, like a database or something. Yeah, but it was like this is a weird, home office. This is a weird uh, stretch. To, we sold software at half price books, so that doesn't seem weird to me at all. We had a whole big software section, and I don't think they can do that anymore. Like we were doing it in the gray area of the '90s, where people would sell us the box with the discs. And technically, I remember we had to tell people, like, we are not selling you the software. We're selling you this item. So if the software has been erased or doesn't work, that's not on us. We can't accept returns. Uh, and uh, it was it was this weird situation, which I'm not sure you'd be able to do now. I guess you still have right of first sale on, on physical items. So maybe. But so much software is downloadable now. You don't even buy Oh yeah, I'm, yeah, but it was just it was weird. You had magazines, books, and software because at the time this is all the stuff you would find at a library, like in your local library. They had at least in my local library, yeah, they had it's information had, stuff that carries yeah, information. They had they had a bunch of Atari 800s, and you would ask the librarian it to borrow a piece of software that you could load onto the computer in the library, uh, and they would load it up for you. So they had like educational games. They had. Uh, a select number, mostly educational titles for kids. Um, 
and like the, they all had headphones because you know a lot of them had like sound features and they didn't want it blurry in a in a library, so you had to wear these big bulky headphones when you're a little kid. But I found it to be like, oh, this is cool. In the future, all libraries will have computers, and I was right. Except that now, in fact, libraries are mostly computers now. Yeah. I mean, not really mostly, but that it's kind of their major their major offering anyway. There was there was a push, and I think there still is, to make computers a standard part of of libraries because, as you said, information. They are. They are a standard part of libraries now. No. Yeah, time is really fast. Me, <laughs> <laughs> I I find it I find it very very like both nostalgic, but also very like um, I don't want to say disconcerting, but uh, very fascinating. Oh, because I used to read books that were written in the fifties and sixties, in the eighties, and that was the most updated books on certain topics into that time. And now we're at the stage where if a book hasn't been published, or at least you know within the past five to eight years it might be it might be considered too old to be relevant because things... yeah we run into that with sword and laser a lot where I, I want us to go back and read older books to kind of appreciate them and a, a large part of our audience and, and I'm, I'm guessing a younger part of our audience than me uh reads those and and is like that was a waste of time i didn't like it uh it, it was out of date uh it's it's observations were, were not relevant anymore people really want to read recent stuff i don't think that's new that people want to read recent stuff but i do agree that there's a little little less i don't want to say respect because that that sounds like people are being disrespectful and that's not what i mean but there's there's a little less value placed on something it's like yeah it's it may be older and have a different perspective but there's something you can get out of that like look past the flaws and the and the oddities you know where they say like by 1997 there will be no food. Like just forget that part and and look look into the story. And I think you can still find. I think value part in of that. it is contextual. Like if I read, like uh, War of the Worlds was written like at the late 1800s or was it the early 1900s? Yeah, I don't, I don't uh, know. I but a lot of that book, if you ever read it, it's just like you know it, it's all very contemporary for the 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 year it was written. And so they have 1898. Uh, so just barely. Okay, so, so they have steamships. They have like, you know, uh, muzzle loading, you know, ball can, you know, all these things that like if you read today, it's like, holy crap, this is, you know, this is written for like my great grandfather uh, uh, period of time. But it's an enjoyable read because I think it, like what you said, if you just detach yourself from, you know, the, the, the specific uh, uh, age reference. Yeah. And you look at it um, from a purely uh, a purely kind of artistic, like contextualized view of the world as it was back then. It's actually very informative. It requires some empathy, I think, in order to read older books. I think it requires empathy, but I also think it needs a little history. Like you need to and understand the decades that yeah. or the yeah. years it was written in. And I find it interesting because. Um, one of the things that we we were taught, at least when I was taught in, in my English class in high school, is like when you read these books, you need to really appreciate the time period it was written in. And my, my, my teacher would give a very elaborate background of what was going on on that period so you could understand, right? If you read a book, like a sci-fi book that was written during the height of the civil rights movement in the 60s, but you didn't know anything about the civil rights movement, it would probably take on less I'm actually reading Joe Haldeman's The Forever War uh, for a second time because uh, Andrew Heaton wants to talk about it on Alienating the Audience. Uh, So I'm going to go record that with him. And I had forgotten just how contextualized that is in 1974. 
the attitudes on sex in the book ring so weird in the modern era because they're progressive in 1974, but they're progressive in a way that, that just, you would never write it that way in 2021, but they're not anyway. It's gonna make it's gonna yeah, make a fascinating it's, it's, discussion. It's progressive because, for the time it wrote. It yeah. was written. But if you look back, if you had the same ideas now, you would be considered an absolute fossil. And, well, exactly because they are progressive then, but we've we've grown and and made them more complex since then, and we understand more yeah. about the implications of them since then. So yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting, and, and again, I mean that's a that's a really good book because it's also again if you understand the context, not just not just like social uh, uh, social mores uh, related to sex, but also the period of conflict and social upheaval, yeah, the Vietnam War just Vietnam ending, War. and and what and, it, what the whole book is a metaphor, and the for. The, fe- the environmental fears are different. Yeah. Uh, the environmental future that he he uh, he predicts is is like it's like having an astigmatism like yeah i can see some of that but some of it's definitely wrong but some of it's like probably still true and yeah I mean, some of the best works are really kind of kind of done that way but sometimes but they they're they're drawn with they're written with such um uh with such a world building eye like dune uh that even if you don't understand the metaphor you will pull similar meanings out of well the the the, the trick of dune that I, I think was incredibly smart of frank herbert is it's not set in our world at all yes and it's set in a far 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 future so that if our world is part of that world it's so far in the past that no one even re- remembers it so that you can have a metaphor about the middle east oil crisis but it still rings true today because he did a great job of pulling out the themes not the exact not the exactly. situation I, it's funny because like uh, there were a bunch of fantasy writers in the sense like is it gore, was that the one? Maybe I'm, I'm trying. There was like a series of books, but it took place like in the future in space where mankind has devolved back into like feudal society. Oh, guar. Where, guar is it guar? It's like G O G O R. I think my cousin used to read all. Oh, gore. Yeah, yeah, G O R. Okay, I think you're right. Uh, uh, yeah. So far in the future that everything just devolved back into like what it was in like the the medieval period in Europe. Yeah, Tarnsmen oh. of Gore, Outlaw of Gore, Nomads of Gore. I was thinking of the metal band Guar, I guess. Oh, I- <laughs> yeah, no, 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 yeah, definitely G O R. Yeah, but I think right. I think I like that. Like you take things so far in the future that you can go back and like do some really weird stuff, but it won't seem dated because. Of course, it's in a different... It will only seem dated if you pull out a dated attitude, right? If you pull out yeah. a universal theme that is truly timeless, it won't seem dated. And I think that's that's what Herbert did so well. I, is, I mean, there's something about Dune that really resonates, and I yeah, really yeah. it. And I think it's, it is that. It's it's what you said about Star Trek, because uh, you know, I, I mentioned to Tom uh, a couple of months back, it's like, you know, I was re-watching Star Trek Voyager and, and Next Generation. It's like... You know the episodes still hold up pretty well, and you and you brought the fact is because a lot of the stories were written around concepts and ideas, yeah, not around you know direct social relationships. Yeah. Well, folks, uh, we are glad to be in a social relationship of a sort with you. So thanks for listening. Subrelliant.com/slash/emw is the website. We shall return again at a time of our choosing, because Roger and I are like wizards. Wizards. We arrive exactly when we mean to podcast. See ya.